Word, John chapter 6, and uh, let me just say for those of you expecting children with child and those of you with small children, we love children, the Lord loves children, they coo, they make noise, and uh, we do believe that they are welcomed by God in worship, so be put at ease. If they make too much noise, we do have a nursery and a narthex, but uh, just parents be at ease, okay? So the reading of God's word, we find ourselves in John chapter six, as we move through John's gospel, we'll begin reading at verse 15 through 21. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea got into the boat and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat and they were afraid. And he said to them, it is I do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. So the reading of God's word, let us pray again. Lord, you are the Lord and giver of life. Your words are ancient words of life. We pray that your spirit would bless the reading and preaching of it even now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the great themes of the Bible is the kingdom of God. In the Gospels, we see that our Lord's message revolved around the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. In fact, in Matthew chapter 4, at the very beginning of his ministry, we find Jesus going out and preaching. What was his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But this kingdom is not like the kingdom so many would expect. It's not a worldly kingdom. It's otherworldly, as we read in the Gospels. Jesus would stand before Pontius Pilate and say, my kingdom is not of or from this world. It's called the kingdom of heaven. That's where it comes from. It does intersect space and time. Jesus has already inaugurated his kingdom at his first coming. But we must realize there are two ages. As Paul says in Ephesians 1.21, there's this present age. There is the age to come. And so in this present age, Jesus continues to build his kingdom, his church, as he says in Matthew 16 and verse 18. He told Peter, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So that's what he's doing. He's building his kingdom. He's building his church even on the earth even now. And so this morning, as we come to this miracle of our Lord, where he walked on water, uh, we must understand that these kingdom miracles of our Lord and the gospel point forward to his kingdom. They tell us, you know, as we've seen already, they authenticate the messenger who is speaking that he has come from God. They are the badges that prove that the one speaking is in fact a prophet of God. And so it tells us that Jesus is who he says that he is, that he is the son of God. These miracles also point us forward 
They point us forward to the work that he would do and accomplish the results of that work. And we also acknowledge that they tell us a little something about his kingdom. One writer, one of my favorite theological works or theologians, Louis Burkhoff, he said this about miracles. He said they connected with the economy of a redemption, a redemption which they often prefigure and symbolize. Miracles are connected with the economy of redemption, a redemption which they often prefigure and symbolize. And these things we've said already about the miracles in the kingdom of Christ, the Jews in his day, the days of Jesus, they did not get this, right? We've already seen that in John chapter 6. Yeah, they were looking for a prophet. They were looking for a Messiah. But they were, they were looking for a political king who would deliver them from the oppressive hands of the Romans. One who would go and fight for them. And Jesus would not have anything of that. And John chapter 6 illustrates this deadly misconception of the Messiah, of Jesus, thinking he is or was or would be this political deliverer. We see that in John chapter 6 with this contrast between the crowds and his disciples, these 12 disciples of our Lord Jesus. And while his disciples didn't fully understand everything at this point, and while they had a small faith, as Jesus would say, a little faith, they had faith nevertheless. And these other people did not have faith at this time. And yet his disciples did, and they would cling to him and his word. And so as we talk about the events in our text this morning, I want us to note three features concerning the kingdom of God. Three features concerning the kingdom of God taught to us through Jesus and his miracle here. Remember last time we saw in John chapter 6, Jesus was beginning his Galilean ministry. He fed the 5,000 and we saw that that was really 5,000 plus. It could have been 20,000. We don't know the exact number, but that was another miracle in and of itself. One of the signs in John's gospel. And yet, as it became clear and becomes clearer in our text, those who followed him were following him for physical reasons only and for selfish intent. And Jesus will expose that as he speaks more truth to them a little later in the chapter. And so then as we talk about these features of the kingdom and what it is that this miracle teaches us concerning the kingdom of Christ, what are they? What are those three elements or features of the kingdom of God? Well, I think first of all, we should see here that the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is a spiritual kingdom. It is spiritual in nature. And surely we learned that beginning of verse 15, where it says, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him, that is, seize him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. And in verse 16, we find the disciples departing and going into the boat. And so there, there is, again, this contrast between his disciples and the crowds. Jesus would have nothing of this 
movement to make him the political king and rival of the political rulers in Rome. Uh, in fact, in Matthew 14, a parallel passage to this one, uh, Matthew 14, 22, it says that Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. And in another parallel passage, Mark chapter 6, it says that he sent them to Bethsaida. So they were to make him this loop going back to where they were before. And then you might ask, well, why? Well, we've already seen Jesus would have nothing of this political movement. But also in Matthew 14, 23, we are told Jesus did this so that he might pray. Did you catch that in verse, uh, I think it's 15. At the end, it says, he, Jesus, departed again to the mountain by himself alone. That's redundant. That is emphatic language. And Jesus is pictured as departing, becoming isolated by himself. He needs strength and power for his ministry. Remember, that's why he led his disciples here in the first place. But the crowds followed him, so he ministered to them selflessly. So Jesus here gets that strength through prayer to his heavenly father. And he sends his disciples to the boat. Now, is this a poor strategic move on Jesus's part? I mean, he's got thousands of people to help his movement, his cause. There's strength in numbers, right? Might makes right. Well, not with Jesus, not with God. God is concerned about the truth. Jesus is the truth. His word is truth. Well, in John chapter two, verse 24, we keep going back to that because John there tells us, Jesus didn't have to ask other men, for he knew what was in man. He knows our hearts intimately. Why? Because he's the second person of the Trinity. He is God in the flesh. He has all knowledge. He is omniscient. And Jesus, as one has noted, is not impressed by great crowds. We need to mark that as well. I think these crowds here, the the great multitudes... They were committing the error of Israel of old in 1 Samuel chapter 8, where, you know, God said that he would be their king. They would have a theocracy. God would rule over them. But they're like, no, we, we want to be like the other nations. We want our king. We want someone who looks nice and handsome, who is strong. And so they chose Saul, who is head and shoulders above the rest. They focused on the external things. And so that proved to be a disaster. Because Saul was not a Christian, we could say, not a believer. He was unregenerate and spiraled downward in his kingdom and rule. And so, again, I just remind you of what Jesus said elsewhere. His kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is spiritual in nature. And so Romans 14, 17 puts it this way. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. But righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, meaning that the kingdom of God does not focus on outward things. It focuses on inward things. That's not to say that it has no influence in physical things. Those things come forth later, no doubt. But we need to see what happened here and make these principles and notice these principles and make applications from them. And so we need to be careful not to pursue numbers for numbers sake, even in our day and time when it comes to the work of the church. 
I mean, that's not to say we don't want numbers. We want to see growth. Jesus has said that he will build his church. But we don't want numbers for numbers sake. Right? We want to see growth. We want to see spiritual growth as well as numerical growth. And as we learn about this event here as we'll see later in the Gospels, when the disciples have swords and cut off ears and all these things, you know, when it comes to this spiritual kingdom, we do commit and engage in spiritual battle. Warfare, kingdom warfare, but not the way the world fights wars, not physically and not with the weapons that the world uses. No, Paul tells us Ephesians six. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, against principalities, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Our, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are spiritual and mighty and taking down strongholds. And so this kingdom advances by spiritual means. Preaching, prayer, as Jesus teaches us here, the means of grace. Holiness and righteousness. And so it is spiritual in nature. There's a second feature here we ought not to miss. And I think this is at the heart of this miracle. What is the second feature then? It is that its membership requires faith. Membership in the kingdom of heaven requires faith in the living God. It requires faith specifically, particularly, exclusively in Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus here is teaching. And when we talk about its requirement of faith, let me remind you, not only for the forgiveness of sins initially when someone repents unto life and puts their faith for the first time in Jesus, they are justified before God. They are declared not guilty. Romans 8, 1 says they are forever forgiven. And that is glorious. And that is the gospel. And we cherish that. And so it's by faith that we are saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2.8 says. Uh, but that journey of faith only begins there. For every moment of every day for the Christian must be filled with faith in God. It wanes, it waxes, it comes, it goes, no doubt. But God is in the business of improving our faith day after day after day. As we see here, I think, in what happens. This is at the heart of Adam and Eve's sin, our first parents. You know, we all come from that dysfunctional family, right? Adam and Eve. And uh, they did not trust God. Because God made a promise. He gave them a command. He gave them warning. So the issue was, would they believe God? Because if they trusted God, if they believed God, guess what? They would obey God. And they would do what he said. But here comes the serpent. He tempts them. And they see something better, they think. And so they go with that and they, they, try, they disobey God. and They don't have faith in God. Well, that's the lifelong lesson we are learning as Christians in the school of Christ. Remember, Jesus is a teacher. He's a rabbi. He's a master. And his disciples are disciples. Mathetes, they are learners. That's what a disciple means in the Greek. They are learning constantly. So they are in his school, as are we today. And so this is what we are learning, that its membership requires faith. And so Jesus sends them to Capernaum. 
He does this, we're told, at evening. The text says it was evening. It is dark. By the way, when it says it's dark, remember there was no electricity. There were no city lights to illuminate the sky in a nearby city. They didn't have, you know, ever readies. Maybe they had an oil lamp. I don't know. It would be on a boat. That might be kind of dangerous. Maybe not. There's water. I don't know. So I don't know if they had a 10 foot, 50 foot visibility or if they couldn't see their hand in front of their face. But it was dark. And they're supposed to get on their little boat and go across the Sea of Galilee. In Matthew 14, 22, it says immediately Jesus made his disciples. That's important. Again, Jesus is the one who directed them to do this. He made them get in the boat to go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And so then comes this storm. Let me tell you a little bit about the Sea of Galilee. It was in Lower Galilee. And there was this surrounding area. It had Mount Tabor, a volcanic mountain that was roughly 2,000 feet tall. There are also these, these two long, steep slopes uh, right next to the Sea of Galilee. They went some 600 feet tall. And what would happen is the wind would blow over them. And uh, like a ski slope, some of you went skiing recently. Imagine it like ice, so the wind comes down. And it just whips across the lake. And it stirs the water. And it forms these huge waves. I remember in California passing over these reservoirs. I mean, you could put in one of them, it seems like you could put like six Lake Lanier's in this one. Every time I passed by, it seemed like it was ocean. It was a lake. It was a man-made reservoir. And evidently many had drowned in that place. And so the storm comes. They begin to struggle and they're rowing. You know, they're rowing with their backs towards the front of the boat. No doubt water's coming in the, the boat. And we're told that in the other translations, you may not have my translations, they wrote about 25 or 30 stadia. And uh, the New King James rightly translates that three to four miles. And Matthew 14 says they were battered by the waves. Literally, they were being tormented by the waves. You know, I I can relate to this, except for I was in the daylight. Um, I have a not so big boat. It has an outboard motor. And years ago, I was on Thurman Lake in South Carolina. It was a Saturday. Um, My three children were all under 14, roughly. And uh, the lake began to get get quite busy. It's like being near the dam or holiday uh, Lake Lanier. And the waves are capping. And I'm like, oh, my word, this is really rough. And then guess what? I run out of gas. My gas gauge was fickle. I did have enough sense to carry a small gas can with a little gas on the boat. So when this happens, I could easily fill it. The only problem is my boat was rocking. Water was coming in the back of the boat. So there I am on this little boat and I'm straddling the outboard motor because I have to put oil in it. And then I have to use the little gas can to fill the gas tank, which is an internal gas tank. And so I could drop the gas or pour it in the lake or whatever. I'm scared to death. I'm trying to have a dad composure for the family. And thankfully, we got through it. I can't imagine what this was like. I think they were in fear for their lives. It's dark. The water's raging. It's terrifying them, tormenting them. 
And uh, you take all that into consideration, consider this, the time lapse. Okay? So Jesus dismisses the disciples at 6 p.m. at evening time. Verse 16. Matthew and Mark, they note that it was the fourth watch when Jesus arrived to them. At Roman time, that was 3 to 6 a.m. 6 p.m. to 3 p.m. or 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. Nine to 12 hours later, they were struggling for probably this whole time. And they only rode about three or four miles. The Lake of Galilee, by the way, was 15 miles wide and six miles long. They were probably right in the middle of this lake, which is called the Sea of Galilee. And so they were fighting the storm. What were they thinking as they were fighting? Probably thoughts like, you better row or we're going to die. Or, we're going to die. Or, where is Jesus? Where is the Lord right now? Doesn't he see? Does he care? What do we think when we're in trouble as Christians? Am I going to die? Or, this really hurts. Lord, do you not see what I'm going through? Do you care? And so the disciples, there they are. They're struggling. They're in the midst of this storm. Where was Jesus? Well, we've already said he departed alone to pray. And he was praying the whole time they were struggling. Mark 6 tells us that he saw them. I don't know if he had you know, he's, he's Jesus, so he probably had supervision, the God man. But he saw them from the shore, struggling. And so as Hebrews 7.25 says about our, ris- our now risen and reigning Lord who sits at God's right hand. He says, the author of Hebrews, therefore he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost. Those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Don't think for a minute that your troubles, your trials, your storms go unnoticed by our Lord. He sees from heaven. He prays to the Father. He intercedes on your behalf. Whether it's finances A troubled relationship, fear of death, you don't make the team, whatever the trial is at that moment in your life. And so here comes Jesus, strolling, walking on water. This not only defies the law of buoyancy, it it defies the laws, the physical laws of nature. Jesus is walking on water. And this is not a, uh-oh, it's magic moment. This is Jesus walking on water. And he appears to them. They see him. Matthew 12 says they became frightened. They thought he was a ghost. They cried out. And perhaps this is a little comical to us as we read it. Maybe they're hugging each other, shivering, and teeth are chattering. I don't know, but they are fearful. And Jesus says, we're told, if you look there, verse 20, 
Jesus says to them, it is I do not be afraid. Do not fear. Do not worry. It is I. And in the Greek, it says ego a me. What does that mean? It means I am. I am. I think with others, this is another I am statement of Jesus. Jesus elsewhere says, I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. Well, here he says, I am, I am. Maybe this begins them. And this harkens back to Exodus 3.14, where there's Moses. There's this physical manifestation of God in the burning bush. It symbolizes his very presence before Moses. And Moses says, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to obey. But who shall I say sent me? God says, tell them I am sent you. I am the one who exists. I am the very being, the God, the living and true God. The, we call it the Tetragrammaton, those four letters that represent the name, whatever it is, Jehovah, Yahweh. And uh, Jesus here, he says, fear not, do not be afraid. I am is with you. And so we have this little glimpse of Jesus's deity here. It's signified, it's manifested by even his walking on water. It's confirmed by his word. And so in verse 21, it says, then they willingly received him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. So if you read the other gospel account, I think it's Matthew 12, you find that this is the place where Peter, he sees Jesus, he walks on water. You know, Jesus says, come, he does. He keeps his eyes on Jesus, but he, he, he takes his eyes off Jesus and he begins to sink. And that happens here. So when you think about all of these things, Jesus sent them to go in the midst of this storm, really. What is Jesus teaching? I think three things I can think of. Um, Jesus, first of all, is teaching his disciples. He's teaching you and me today that he is the Lord of creation. As that old song says, he's got the whole world in his hands. Not all state. It's God. It's Jesus. He's got the whole world in his hands. He is the Lord of creation. I mean, in John chapter one, he's already opened with this. The, the writer, all things, verse three of John one, all things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. He's the creator. If he's the creator, he has authority over the creation. He has power over the creation, right? And so he's teaching his disciples as they go through the storm. He is the Lord over creation. He is sovereign over the waves. He is sovereign over the sea. As Psalm 107 puts it, which by the way, many think was a prophecy concerning this very event. Psalm 107 and verse 25, it says of God, he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. When God dips his finger in the ocean, we get a Hugo, we get a Katrina, we get a tsunami. He is the one who ultimately does these things. So what are we to learn from this? Well, Isaiah 43 tells us, right? In verse two, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, God says. 
and through the rivers. They shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. And so he is sovereign over his creation. Second, I think there's a lesson here for us to learn, and it is this. He is the Lord of redemption. I mean, think about what's going on here. There's been talk of Moses earlier. Chapter 5, I think it is. And then in chapter 6 at the beginning, there's this bread that is multiplied. Here they're going through the waters. Jesus, he miraculously walks on the water. Does this think of, make you think of anything in the Old Testament? Like, you know, maybe the Exodus or something like that. Jesus here is teaching them that he is their savior. With him, they are safe. Even in the storm, even though you have to walk through the parted sea or sail and row over the tumultuous sea, you are safe with Jesus Christ. And so whatever your storm is today, Jesus wants you to see, to know and believe that you're safe with him in the midst of it. And what does that mean for us? The third lesson is that the storm had a purpose. There are no coincidences with God. God has seen fit to permit evil in this world. We call that the mystery of evil. And that's a problem, by the way, for the unbeliever, not the Christian, because you have to define evil. God defines evil. The unbeliever cannot define evil. He has no standard. We have God's standard. He is truth. But the point is that God allows evil in this world. He allows natural evil. He allows bad things to happen. It doesn't mean he's bad or that he is not in control. It means that he has a purpose. That purpose is ultimately his own glory, Ephesians 1.11 says. But for the Christian, it means as Roman 8 says, he works all things together for good to the called, to those who love him and are the called, according to his purpose. And so whatever the event is in the life of the Christian, good or ill, God uses it to mold our character, to mold our thinking, to make us to be more like Jesus Christ. And so this storm had a purpose. Its purpose was to make them to be more like their master, the disciples like their master, their master who completely and always trusted his heavenly father, no matter what he went through. Ultimately, he would go through the cross. As First Peter 2 says, he kept committing himself over and over and over again to his heavenly father. And that's the lesson for us to learn today. In Matthew 14, he told them, be of good cheer. Now, to me, that's, that's an old Elizabethan king word, I think. Be of good cheer. Well, in the Greek, it means have courage. Be strong. And he eventually would say, Jesus, to Peter, why did you doubt? So what is it that you fear today? Maybe it's even death. The very one who wrote this gospel under the inspiration of the Spirit, John, the apostle, gave to us by the inspiration of the Spirit, the Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And in the last book of the Bible, in the first chapter, Jesus appears to John as he is banished to the island of Patmos by himself 
perhaps fearful of death. Here is Jesus risen already, reigning. He appears to John. John sees him and he's like, oh, and he falls down like a, a dead man because he saw the holy Christ, the fully uh, manifested, risen and reigning Lord Jesus. Jesus says again, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I am he who lives. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. What does that mean? John, do not fear even death. I have overcome death. If I have overcome death, if I have authority and power over death, guess what? The same is true for you because I'm gracious. I keep my word. I promise this to you. You will overcome death. That's what Jesus is saying. So we, we need not fear death, beloved. Jesus will go on to tell these disciples in John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I think he means in their death. He will come to them as the good shepherd, as he will come to you, Christian, in your death, as he will come to me in my death. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we need not fear any evil. For he is with us, his rod and his staff, they comfort us. You know, Paul says, when I am weak, then I'm strong. And J.I. Packer, I think he's still alive. He's an old man, a wise man. He wrote a book some few years ago, and uh, it's called Weakness is the Way. And uh, he says this. He says, believers can face the close of life without fear, without panic, without alarm, because they know that whatever else changes, they will be with Christ in Christ, through Christ, being glorified together with Christ forever and ever. Do you fear being alone? Do you fear a terminal sickness? Do you fear a nuclear war? God says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus says, fear not, be of good cheer. You see, death for the Christian is the threshold to eternity with God, with Jesus forever. For the unbeliever, it's the threshold to hell. But that's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ for those who trust him. By the way, let me just say that throughout the history of the church, this um, strengthening power of the presence of Christ in the life of his disciples, the hope of glory, the hope of heaven, uh, this really has been one of the reasons as to why in the past Christians have been seen by hostile anti-Christian governments and forces as unruly pests. It's because Christians haven't been afraid to die. Go back and read uh, Fox's book of martyrs. I mean, think about it. These disciples in this boat, they would get this lesson, most all of them. And uh, many, if not most of them, would die a cruel death because they preached Jesus Christ. They followed him. They preached his gospel. And so we know that Andrew, Peter's brother, was ordered by the Romans later not to preach in the name of Jesus. And here's what he said. He said, I would not have preached the honor and glory of the cross if I feared the death of the cross. That was the worst way to die in their day. He didn't fear it. Why? Because Jesus has already gone to the cross and overcome the grave. 
And he says, because I live, you also shall live. And so that's the lesson for these disciples here, as we see in this text. Well, finally, then there's a third thing I think we could find here and and learn from this miracle of Jesus. uh, This last feature uh, concerning the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And that is its consummation is sure. It's completion. It's coming. It's finality is sure. Look at verse 21. I think there's not one miracle in this text. I think there's two. Verse 21 says, then they willingly received him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. It didn't take them two hours, three hours, 12 hours. It says immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. I think this was some sort of teleporting. I don't know what you would call it. Some have said it's a quantum leap. It's a miracle, I think. And the emphasis is that it happened so quickly. One commentator simply outlined this text this way. Jesus watches. Jesus comes, Jesus helps, Jesus brings us to our haven. He told them to go to a certain place. Along that way, they're in the storm. He comes to their aid and he makes sure that they providentially, I think, miraculously arrive at their destination. Their haven or haven. And you see, one day, we too, beloved, we, through the grace of God, through his providence, through his miraculous power, shall reach our destination. He will deliver us from the tempest of this life to our safety and rest in that harbor, which is called heaven. That place in Revelation that says there are no more tears, no more suffering, no more pain, which comes down to the earth in the end. Isn't that glorious? That means if you're in the midst of the boat this morning, if you're in the midst of the storm that Christ, he has a power waiting for you. That power is his his presence as you draw near to him in the word and prayer. And he will see to it that you get to your destination. I'll close with this. Hebrews 4 and verse 16. Here's the admonition. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that... um, as we learn these lessons in life, as we enter the trials of life, that you would stretch us, that you would increase our faith. For we at times feel that we have little faith, but we, we know that Christ has had faith for us. That he lived for us and he equips us by your spirit, that you do so by your word. And we pray, O oh Father, that until that dying day, or when Jesus comes back to claim us, that we will be faithful to you 
and that Jesus will see to it that we arrive home safely. In his name we pray. Amen.